Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, podcast listeners. My name is Christopher Patterson. I am an assistant professor at the New York Institute of Technology here in Nanjing, China, and I am the host of this podcast, New Books in Asian American Studies. Today, we are joined by Leilani Nishime, who is an assistant professor of communications at the University of Washington. We will discuss her book, Undercover Asian, Multiracial Asian Americans in Visual Culture, which was published by University of Illinois Press in 2013. Undercover Asian challenges the dominant U.S. cultural narrative that imagines multiracial people as symbols of a future United States where race has ceased to function as a viable category. Nishime considers how representations of mixed race people often negate the significance of race by seeing racial mixture as an unprecedented social development that can later promise a future free of race. Opposed to this narrative, Nishime considers how various narratives of multiracial Asian Americans can rupture naturalized notions of racial difference. So Leilani, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Hi. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. Uh, Could you begin the interview by telling us a bit about what brought you to study uh, multiracial Asian Americans in visual media? Okay. Well, so I had been doing work in um, Asian Americans more generally and visual culture because uh, I had done work in my graduate work on Asian Americans. Um, It was a literature degree, but I was interested in all kinds of media. And once I graduated my program, I went to uh, ethnic studies department. And um, they were asking me to teach all sorts of classes, um, including uh, film class, uh, race and film class. So I started getting more interested in visual culture. Um, I think the reason that I started working on mixed race Asians is mostly because of my students, actually. I used to teach uh, Asian, Asian American experience class. Mm. Um, it was one of my favorite classes to teach, and students would start were asking me about, well, what about mixed-race Asians? And then so I did, like, um, a week-long unit on it, and students really liked it, so I expanded it to a two-week unit, and they were still asking, so I expanded it into a class. Mm. Um, and at that point, I started thinking there was more going on here, and there was more things that I wanted to explore. Um, so that's pretty much what made me decide this is something I wanted to write about. 
Oh, that's really interesting. Actually paying attention to how your students are <laughs> responding. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, look, they're all waking up when I talk about this. <laughs> and it shows it, 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 it's a fair exchange. It turns into a book once you get deep enough. Yeah, I think so. It, you know, it's just nice to, I, I definitely wanted to write something that I thought people would read. Um, so it helped to find something that seemed to get people excited. It's true, actually. I was when I tell people what I'm interviewing people for, you know, I, I, when I was describing this book, um, all my friends who aren't really in academia were so much more interested finally in this podcast. <laughs> oh, so I think there, yeah, there is something to that, right? Uh, you know, very analytically heavy, but also uh, about subjects that everyone can kind of relate to, especially yeah. Asian Americans. I, I wanted to start the interview by taking apart each of those terms in your subtitle. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the multiracial Asian Americans and visual culture. Yeah. Uh, first of all, that the term multiracial, uh, rather than mixed race or hapa or something else, uh, why use this term and, uh, who kind of counts as multiracial? Like do half Irish, half Italian people also seem to count or is it mostly like people of color? So I decided to use the word multiracial, although at this point I think I could also use mixed race. When I started writing the book, um, I think there was a lot of discussion about which terms to use, and there was, I think, a perception that mixed race tended to mean, um, tended to reinforce the idea that there are these distinct racial groups that then get mixed together. Um, and I think people were interested in using the term multiracial because they felt that it de-emphasized that um, biological element. I think at this point, though, People use the terms fairly interchangeably, and actually mixed race is becoming more popular among academics. So it was less a, um, a sort of ethical decision for me and more in terms of what seemed to be the way that people use that term. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, the reason I didn't use HAPA, though, was much more deliberate. So um, there is a, quite a bit of controversy over the term HAPA, so it became very popular, I think, uh, amongst college age students um, who are interested in identifying as mixed race Asian um, and mostly in California is kind of where it started. And they were using a term that had been quite popular in Hawaii. Mm. Um, but a lot of the people who were part of a kind of um, Hawaii renaissance, a Hawaii sovereignty movement, um, felt that the term was being taken out of context and was being appropriated by people who didn't really um, feel a connection to Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And so um, I was kind of aware of those conversations going on. And so that's, I, I've made a, a decision not to use the term HAPA, even though I think it has a lot of emotional resonance for quite a few people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the uh, decision over, I guess the words to use is seems also um, kind of a symptom of how we talk about mixed race yeah. or, or don't talk about it, I guess. Uh, we seem yeah. to, to lack a, a vocabulary, I guess, to, to adequately, adequately deal with mixed race people. Uh, so uh, you begin the book talking about the, the dominant narrative uh, that we usually have about mixed race. You, you go over some uh, magazine articles about generation mixed, or yeah. you know, we have this idea of like mixed race people as a kind of bridge between cultures. Uh, but what was the, the dominant narrative of mixed race people and uh, what, what seemed wrong with it as you were beginning your book? Yeah. Um, well, I think that the dominant narrative was really about uh, how mixed race was a sign of racial progress and also that it was a path towards getting rid of race, that race was going to go away because people were mixing. Um, and I think that it was often said in opposition to um, 
earlier ways of thinking about mixed race as being impure or being um, a, a problematic identity category. And so um, in contrast to that, you could see the, um, the interest or the willingness to claim a mixed race identity as being progressive in some way. Um, but I think that got translated into ways that I think were really politically regressive mm-hmm. uh, and that, that that conception of mixed race, meaning the end of race, really made it so that I think it gave people an out. It made it easier to not really deal with racial problems that we have currently. To sort of feel like if we just sit back and do nothing, then race is going to go away and fix itself somehow. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of like in some science fiction narratives um, that also get spoofed, right? Where you go in the future and everyone's the same tint of brown or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't even think you need to go to science fiction for that, right? I think um, there are... Uh, there are people who would believe that's happening even now. Mm-hmm. It's a, they sometimes call it the browning of America, that we're all going to be some kind of undifferentiated brown, shade of brown. Mm-hmm. And so there's not going to be any races left. And then I guess we'll all be happy and <laughs> everything. Will yes, then we'll all hold hands and there'll yeah. be rainbows and we'll all drink Coke. It'll be great. So let's get to the, the second term in that subtitle, which is Asian Americans. You do spend time in your book talk, talking about how this discourse of mixed race kind of grows out or is linked to uh, African-American ideas about racial mixture, biraciality, racial passing, uh, mulattoes and all this. How are Asian-American narratives different than that? Or how is mixed race, as we talk about it now, uh, different from the discourse of like biracial people, uh, quadroons and all that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a really, so the reason that I wanted to use a term like multiracial Asian Americans, which is so long and, Mm. you know, kind of unwieldy, is because I really wanted to keep that element of Asian Americans in there, because I think the ways that um, people generally, if you just say multiracial, if you just say mixed race, people generally will think about black and white mixed. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, you know, just because of the longer history of U.S. racial relations um, that, we tend to think about race in a binary way about black and white. Um, but I think that mixed race Asian Americans, um, because Asian Americans themselves have a very specific kind of history that, um, that I wanted to really trace that kind of history and about, I really wanted to look at how mixed race Asian Americans, um, I mean, in some ways parallel, I think there's a lot of ways you can see crossover, mm-hmm. um, but also that they have a, there's a distinct element to it. I, you know, for, for me, part of it is thinking about how um, mixed race Asian Americans in some sense are, uh, exaggerate a lot of the stereotypes I think we already have about Asian Americans. Mm-hmm. So that really strong narrative of assimilation and of um, post-racial identities, all those kinds of things that I think often get mapped onto um, Asians in the U.S. get mapped on, you know, tenfold when you're talking about mixed-race Asian Americans. Mm-hmm. You, you also include, like, I guess if, if I were to just hear that term multiracial Asian American, I would immediately think white and Asian, white and Japanese, white and Chinese. But you also consider people who are part black, uh, mm-hmm. part Asian, uh, you know, part, and we could also think about people who are part Hispanic, part Asian or something like it. It doesn't seem to have the same immediate assumptions as something like biracial would. Yeah. I, maybe. Although I think you're right that mostly when people think about mixed race Asians, it's mostly, uh, white and Asian. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I did try to, so I did also want to talk about 
uh, Asian African American mixtures or mixed race people um, in the book, partly because, and it's not, I think, you know, I could have easily also talked about um, Asian Native Americans or Asian Latinos. I'm not easily, I would have to learn a lot before I did that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I didn't include other groups because I felt like I had so much to deal with just by thinking in in sort of these three categories. Hmm. I didn't want to end up being kind of flavor of the month. Mm -hmm. I wanted to think about things in more depth. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I also thought it was important because I think that, um, I think that to understand racial relations in the U.S., you have to understand the black-white binary. And so I wanted to also think about how Asians are positioned in relation to African Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really crucial in thinking about what it means to be um, Asian American. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like there was there was a time, or maybe there still is, where if you're doing Asian American uh, scholarship, sometimes it would it would be to just really emphasize the difference between Asian American and and white, and kind mm-hmm. of just to resist that that racial the the black white binary. But you yeah. seem to kind of just accept, like, that, yes, this is usually how we see race in the U.S., and this is how, and, and instead of trying to ignore it or deviate from it, it, you're looking at Asian Americans through that lens, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes, so one of the things I talk about in the book is this kind of rhetorical move that I, I see constantly where they talk about Asians as being beyond black and white, um, mm-hmm. I think partly because it helps sell books, sell book. mm-hmm. it helps sell books, Um <laughs> But I, yeah, I, I felt like I, I really wanted to push back against that and not think about Asian Americans as beyond black and white or outside of black and white or somehow um, a cure for the problem mm-hmm. of, of the racial binary. But I think that we're very much embedded in that binary and where Asians are used in the U.S. to to prop it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's let's go to the third term in that subtitle, which is a visual culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure you deal with students who ask the same question, but let's just get it out there. <laughs> uh, why visual representations? How how do visual representations of multiracial bodies tell us something different than you know other types of analysis, literary, statistical? Uh, and you know this, this I guess goes back back to images of the the mixed race body as being kind of ambiguous and having to make a choice or being seen as half and half and how that kind of construes this uh, post-racial narrative about mixed-race people. Yeah. Well, I so um, I really became interested in visual culture, partly because there seemed to be such a paradox in the way that we talk about race in the U.S. Um, so I think it's a pretty widely accepted idea that um, there's no biological race so, you know, in most freshman year classrooms, first year classrooms in college, students learn that there's no biological basis for race. Mm-hmm. Um, and so most, I think, you know, you see it on the cover of Time Magazine, whatever, most people will will argue that's true. And yet, at the same time, we have this whole um, way of seeing race, right? We walk down the street and we see different races of people. So for me, that seems like a real paradox to try and think through. Why do we still perceive race? Why do we still see race, even if intellectually we believe it doesn't exist. Mm. Um, so that kind of was my starting point, even before I started thinking about mixed-race Asian Americans as being a way to think through that question. Um, so and you know, part of it is because uh, the way I got to thinking about mixed-race Asian Americans is that um, I would sometimes tell people, you know, to play those games about, you know, who's mixed-race, who isn't. And I would tell people that, um, say, Keanu Reeves, 
or Meg Tilly, who was a you know big star at the time, that were mixed race Asian. And I would you know why do you think that they're not recognized as mixed race Asian? People say well because they don't look Asian. Mm-hmm. Um, and that for me was a really interesting kind of response that this was something that somehow seemed to be inside somebody's body that we believe that you know it goes back to that biological belief. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to see to think about why is it that we don't have the terms or the visual terms, I would say. I think the term I use is visual vocabulary. Mm -hmm. So why we haven't kind of learned how to see mixed race Asians. Mm -hmm. Um, I think when we were talking earlier, you were talking a little bit about Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And I think Hawaii is a a really interesting example, right? There's many mixed race people, mixed race Asians in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a much, uh, it's much they're much more visible there. I think mm-hmm. people recognize mixturizations much more readily there. And it's not because they look different than they do when they're in another state, right? Yeah. It's just that people have that, have learned how to recognize people who are mixturization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's, why don't we spend a moment on Hawaii in that case? Because uh, I was also very intrigued by how you situated Hawaii yeah. uh, as a kind of example of brownwashing. Uh, can you explain, I guess, how you see it that way and... Um, perhaps how the discourse about Hawaii then feeds into um, how we see uh, Barack Obama particularly. Oh, yeah, I don't know about Barack Obama, but (laughs) (laughs) um, I think in Hawaii, so I use the example of Hawaii because it's such a popular storyline, I think, to talk about Hawaii as the melting pot of the Pacific. Mm -hmm. And um, people imagine it as a space that, all these different races, um, Native Hawaiians and people from all parts of Asia and white Americans all got together and they all mixed together and all live harmoniously and it's sort of the aloha spirit. <laughs> and I think that kind of um, vision of what it means to have a mixed-race future um, often gets, I think, sort of map onto Hawaii, right? Mm. People think about Hawaii as a, an example of how the future is going to be. Um, but what I talk about in the book is that that vision of what Hawaii is about has to really come from the outside, come from people who don't live in Hawaii mm-hmm. and don't really have a sense that things are not like a happy melting pot there. Um, and I think not necessarily like an unhappy melting pot, mm-hmm. but I think um, in Hawaii, what you have is, I think, a, a different kind of recognition of what it means to be mixed. So uh, I think there's... Um, there's a lot of different names for different kinds of racial mixtures in Hawaii, and those are important kinds of identity markers. And so what you have instead of a disappearance of race is, I think, a reconfiguration of it. Right? It means something a little different there, but that doesn't mean that it's kind of all gone away. And I think that story of kind of this happy mixture ignores, you know, the legacy of white supremacy in Hawaii. It ignores the um, the oppression of Native Hawaiians. There's all sorts of really difficult political issues in Hawaii that get covered over in that story of, you know, the melting pot of the Pacific. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it seems like the, this a vocabulary, I guess, to recognize different types of mixed-race people as we kind of get in Hawaii would probably develop anyways, if that dream, I guess, of kind of a brownwashing, we became closer to that, I suppose. We would still develop a vocabulary for how to recognize different types of, of mixed-race people, but it might not be as critical. Yeah. I think this idea that mixed-race people are going to lead to this kind of um, 
brown future really ignores how long people have been mixing in the U.S., right? Mm -hmm. Basically, since there have been a country, people have been racially mixing and yet still have racial distinctions. So I think it's it's um, locating the cause of racial boundaries in the wrong place, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's relocating it in different kinds of bodies rather than seeing it as this kind of social political structure that then gets written onto different kinds of bodies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let, let's shoot then towards the uh, the historical context and how this this discourse um, developed. And one thing I really liked about your your first chapter and in your preface was that you considered how we, we usually tend to see the discourse towards mixed race developing after Loving versus Virginia, the 1967 court case, uh, and how that's kind of seen as an origin point for when this supposedly new uh, mixed race culture started to develop. Uh, but you offer a different, a more complex history, I guess, of negotiations and, and imperial uh, interests. Right? Can you explain, I guess, how Loving versus Virginia got, got placed as this kind of origin point and how the, the history of it is actually much more complex well, I mean, I think Loving versus Virginia, it's partly because it is so significant. I mean, I think that is partly why it became the origin point, because it was this big Supreme Court case. It got a lot of attention. It was a Supreme Court case that allowed um, a white man and a black woman to be married, and it overturned all the um, the law against mixed-race marriages mm. in the country. Um, and so I think it it became this sort of signal moment, partly because I think it allowed us to, to tell this history. The point it was coming in our history, too, was when the civil rights movement was really gaining momentum, where it seemed to be working. Mm -hmm. And so I think it gets memorialized as being part of this this moment when um, racial barriers were falling, when sort of the civil rights, the promise of the civil rights movement was coming true. And so it's seen as this really kind of hopeful moment of um, racial reconciliation. Mm -hmm. You know, I think what we've seen since then, particularly for people who work in ethnic studies, for example, right, is that um, a lot of that promise didn't actually pay out, um, and that the kind of leap forward to thinking about post-racial world um, is uh, is because we have um, sort of told the story about the civil rights movement uh, and the success of the civil rights movement that ignores a lot of existing inequalities. Um, so. What I write about in the book is that maybe we should think about why that's an origin point and what would happen if we looked at other kinds of origin moments, originary mm -hmm. moments. And so what we might do, for instance, is go to um, the 1946 War Act, mm -hmm. 45, 46. 45, uh, I think, in the book. 45, sorry. Um, and that's the, the act that um, made it legal for uh, if soldiers married um, – Men from other countries that those women would would be allowed to have citizens, um, and so this had a really uh, it's, it's not very neutral, right? It's a kind of racially neutral law, but um, it had this really disproportionate impact, which was that at the time Asian women were not allowed to become U.S. citizens, mm -hmm. and so it allowed this loophole in the law that allowed Asian women to immigrate and become citizens. Um, because of, you know, post-World War II. So there are a lot of soldiers who are marrying um, Japanese women in particular, but also women in other parts of Asia, um, and allowing them to come to the U.S. and become citizens. So um, for me, that's a really different kind of origin story, uh, partly because of how strictly gendered it is um, and it, the way it was so strictly racialized. So it was almost all, or I think all white men, um, and 
the and the women and so they were all marrying Asian women, right? I mean, they were marrying European women as well. Mm-hmm. But in, in terms of race, you see a lot of um, what gets institutionalized is white men marrying Asian women, and these are not just um, sort of randomly people who meet on the street, but that you have a conquering army um, marrying uh, women who are in countries that um, the U.S. has sort of imperial uh, intentions towards. It has a very different kind of story of, instead of thinking about it as being this moment of equality and the, the blooming of civil rights, you can see it as really being really implicated in certain kinds of national and racial and gender boundaries. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, when I mentioned um, to some friends here in China uh, that I was interviewing you for about this book about mixed race, um, you know, they they are also mixed race. And we, uh, you know, I guess your, your students probably had similar experiences where um, in much of the world, especially in Asia, people don't ask me uh, what, if I'm mixed, they ask, you know, uh, uh, what nation my mother was from. Oh, all right. And so the assumption, right, is it's going to be your mother. Yeah. Nobody, nobody ever asks if my dad is from, <laughs> is from the <laughs> Philippines or from Korea or something. It's always, oh, is your mom Chinese? Is your mom Korean? And like, it doesn't have to be, but it is. But uh, Yeah, I think that's, yeah, yeah and because of these historical patterns, it's not, it's not like that so happens, um, which I think is often how people imagine, you know, it's just, it's just luck or just the happenstance. I don't think that's true. Yeah. And this, and this, uh, typical, I guess what we envision as a kind of typical mixed marriage and mixed race children is, as you outline is not only has these colonial overtones, there's also always very heteronormative, very gender normative, um, and then produces children who are kind of seen in this, as this utopic futuristic dream thing. Uh, can you explain all the, all the expectations that seem to come with mixed families and, you know, the hus- the role of the husband and wife? Yeah. Well, so um, one of the chapters uh, in the book is about the TV series Battlestar Galactica. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that series really plays out um, the the kinds of expectations that we have for the mixed race families in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So in it, I talk about how um, I saw shift in terms of these kind of colonial narratives. I think the colonial narrative for a lot of the 20th century was that the U.S. was kind of a father figure and Asia, they were sort of childlike and they needed to be rescued and helped. Mm-hmm. Um, and often the, the mixed race child in something like, say, M. Butterfly, um, gets taken away from the Asian culture and raised in the U.S. culture and um, gets fully assimilated. And often the mother gets left out of that story. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could see that maybe the, the, a lot in the 1970s and 1980s, there are a lot of stories about um, children from the Vietnam War, admiration children from the Vietnam War that told that same story. Um, and what I saw going on was a, a shift in that story um, to be more about this heteronormative mixed-race family. Um, and it, and it k- keeps uh, that same kind of gender and racial binary where you usually have a white father and an Asian mother. Um, but this time, I think the family stays together. You see much more of a, of a family unit um, remain connected. But I think what happens is that you get a different kind of story about um, about Asia, the, the role of Asia, and especially Asian migrants and immigrants, mm-hmm. that their role then is to kind of reject their home culture and um, go to the U.S. and kind of fall in love, whether that's actually with the person or with the country itself, mm-hmm. and sort of dedicate themselves fully to this new country. 
And mm-hmm. so you see it played out in very extreme ways in a show like Battlestar Galactica. So you have a character who's played by an Asian woman, and she's supposed to be an alien. Um, but there's there's a, a episode that's mainly about her, and she gives them um, a virus, or she allows them to have a virus, or something like that, that would wipe out her entire um, race of people. They call them Cylons, and she willingly agrees to do this to probably to show her loyalty to the humans in it, mm. which I thought was really a kind of a devastating indictment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I think one of the other kind of really what the other thing that was really upsetting to me, I guess, or when I when I um, was doing this analysis that I thought was quite typical and very upsetting was that. Um, you see a real differentiation, too. So in the show, there's the idea that she's cloned. She's mm-hmm. got many multiples. And while she's allowed to be married and fall in love and become part of the dominant class, there's, she, there's all these other clones of her, and some of whom are sex workers, and some of whom are kind of, um, they, they work, she works in, they, they work in like the industry, I guess mm, you would call like it. Yeah, working class, working yeah. class kind of work, uh, and they and they also remain fairly alienated from the humans. They don't fall in love, they don't get married, they don't become part of this kind of sexual family, and they always remain pretty alienated in the show. And towards the end of the show, I hope this doesn't spoil it for anyone, but towards <laughs> the end of the show, the the character who's um, really well integrated ends up shooting the her clone who's like one of these kind of lower class people. So I think it also really depends on differentiating kind of good Asians, mm-hmm. um, which are the ones who fall in love and, and you know, whatever, become assimilated, and the bad quote unquote bad Asians who are more working class um, and who are there who come to the US um, for economic reasons rather than because they, you know, have bought into the kind of ideology of the US as being superior. Mm-hmm. Before we get into the chapters of, of your book, uh, was there anything else that really surprised you uh, as you were doing research for this book or completing it? I mean, you, you do, do devote two chapters to Keanu Reeves, and you, you seem like very, uh, like you found... Obsessed? I mean, do you think I sound obsessed? <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe a little obsessed, but <laughs> was there anything that really surprised you as you were doing work for it or as you were doing this kind of research? Uh, that maybe oh. changed your expectations of what you were going for in the in the beginning. Oh yeah, I felt like that was happening all the time. Actually, mm-hmm. um, this ended up being a book that I wasn't really expecting it to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think I even started out thinking that I was going to write an entire book about mixed race people, mm-hmm. um, and so uh, that was a bit of a surprise. Um, I think, yeah, there was so much of it where I just felt like it was not. It was kind of. Um, moving ahead of me, I was kind of running to catch up mm. with the with the things that I was finding. So I I feel like a lot of this um, worked that way. Mm. So let's get to your second chapter, uh, which is on Keanu Reeves, and then we'll get back to Keanu Reeves again <laughs> with the fifth <laughs> chapter. Uh, but this also has a fantastic title that I just wanted to parse through a little bit, <laughs> which is a uh, queer Keanu: The Politics of Bad Acting in the Era of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Uh, I'm tempted to go through every word of that title and devote a question to every word. But <laughs> instead, let me just ask, uh, what is the relationship of those terms, uh, the terms queer, bad acting, uh, don't ask, don't tell, and Keanu Reeves? Yeah. Well, um, so the title, uh, the beginning part of the title came from um, the rumors about Keanu Reeves being gay that were, um, you know, really popular in the 90s. And actually, the whole thing came out of, I had given a talk about because I've been 
saying about him for a long time, uh, a while back. And after I gave the talk, somebody in the audience raised their hand and said, well, what about all these rumors of him being gay? And I was like, uh, I have nothing to say to that because I just really haven't thought about it. Um, but it got me thinking about it. And I think it, for me, it seems really fundamental now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I talk about is how uh, very few people actually talk about counters as being mixed race, which is uh, considering that he, it's, you know, he, it's mentioned quite often in his publicity material, and often articles will mention it as well, and yet there still seems to be this way that every time it gets mentioned, it gets forgotten again. Mm-hmm. And so um, I thought there's kind of that weird gap, then there was also all these rumors about him being gay. Um, and so for me, it came together around the, the really specific rumors about him being involved with this movie producer, a record producer named David Geffen. Um, and those rumors sort of blossomed in the mid-90s, which was the same time that um, the Don't Ask, Don't Tell legislation was ramping up. Mm-hmm. And so that was the um, the military legislation of um, saying military personnel, they removed the law saying that they couldn't be gay, but they had to not say it. Like mm-hmm. if they said we're gay, then they could be kicked out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, there was all the popular conversation about closeting and outing and what it meant to be in the closet and what it meant to be outed. And there were um, these newspapers like The Advocate that were outing a lot of people who had formerly been in the closet, gay politicians mostly, Mm -hmm. um, as part of the um, uh, trying to respond to the AIDS epidemic. So what I um, argue is that we had sort of lost a lot of the rhetoric, a lot of language we had around mixed race people and like 1950s in America, there was all these movies and books and stuff about mixed people in passing. Those things weren't available anymore, so we lost that vocabulary. And instead, we're gaining all this vocabulary about um, outing and closeting. And I felt like that one vocabulary got mapped onto the other. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think part of the reason that Keanu Reeves was perceived to be gay was because um, we didn't really have a language for talking about mixed race. There, there was no ways to make that legible, I think, mm. in popular culture. Mm. And what about bad acting? <laughs> um, well, so I, it would be no surprise, I think, to people to know that he has really bad reviews. Um, and in chapter, that was actually one of the most fun parts, was reading movie reviews for bad reviews, and there were so many. <laughs> um, but <laughs> what I was noticing is that many of the reviews really harped on the idea that he was um, he had no depth. Uh, and that he seemed kind of fake in some way or shallow or um, wooden and robotic. These are all kind of the terms people used. Um, and so for me, it seemed to really be also about these questions of authenticity mm-hmm. that um, we, we want to believe that good acting, or we, we perceive good acting to be um, people showing you their inner selves, showing you their true depth, showing you their true nature. And I think Keanu Reeves, in his um, publicity and in the way he sort of built his star image, was all about refusing that kind of essentialism. Mm-hmm. Right? So when they asked him if he's gay, for instance, he said, no, I'm not, but you never know. Right? He liked to keep that ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Um, the same way there was this kind of ambiguity about his racial identity. I think all those kinds of things that, for me, made him really appealing also, I think, fed into this story or this, this idea of him as being the actor because he doesn't sort of fake a depth for us, right? I mean, good acting means that you could fake me deep. Mm. And he doesn't do that, not in his movies, I don't think, and not in his 
shop persona either. Mm -hmm. It seems uh, interesting to kind of compare his acting with other, the way other Japanese actors or so, or Chinese might be considered in the United States, where if you're like wooden and show no emotion, but you own this kind of Japanese identity, they probably would have read him very differently uh, as an actor. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would, I would think so. Um, you know, the, I don't think it's all about um, technique, mm -hmm. right? I think there's also this extra narrative going on. So let's uh, move off Keanu Reeves just for now. <laughs> we'll come back to it. <laughs> uh, but your third chapter is, uh, seems like the most timely chapter in the book. Uh, it's about the, the rise and fall of Tiger Woods. Yeah. Uh, and you consider his celebrity as a kind of representation of a double minority, but also as a kind of colorblind uh, a celebrity culture that, that becomes very colorblind, uh, but it then changes after his big scandal. Uh, so how does uh, perceptions of Tiger Woods change before and after, uh, after the scandal, and how is it partially determined by his uh, multiracial background? Yeah. Actually, I think it's largely determined by his multiracial background. Mm -hmm. um, so I think a lot of his celebrity before, when he first became famous, um, had to do with him fulfilling this storyline that we're having, this mythology that we're talking about, about mixed-race people, about him being um, a sort of this perfect mixture of all, di all different kinds of people. And because he was this perfect mixture, there was no, had no racial identity at all. Mm -hmm. So people would often talk about him as being sort of bland in some way. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I talked about it in some of his ads, we, didn't, we don't get to see much of his body, which is odd for someone who's an athlete. Mm -hmm. And probably the most famous um, uh, one is his, this ad that was um, analyzed by uh, Hiram Perez about um, that I Am Tiger Woods ad, where they have all these different people, uh, children and adults and people of different races, saying, I am Tiger Woods. Mm -hmm. And you don't actually see Tiger Woods in that commercial at all. Mm -hmm. So he is body just gets completely erased, right? His, his race and his racial body and him, he gets erased and becomes kind of every man, every race together. Hmm. Um, and I think he was really celebrated for, for doing that. Um, and then I think what happens after the scandal about his affairs is that um, a lot of the kind of racial anxieties that we had that were being kind of covered over by this pretty story comes to the fore, right? It really erupts through that um, veneer we had about colorblindness. And he gets really intensely racialized after his, um, after this, the scandal breaks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I guess he did something naughty or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He had, you know, he had an affair with a few women, but mm -hmm. they acted like he, I mean, there was comparisons, OJ Simpson, who was accused, murdering someone. Mm -hmm. I think that's a pretty big distinction. Mm -hmm. And yet to compare those two, uh, compare those two acts, I think it has something to do with how badly people felt betrayed mm -hmm. um, by him not being this kind of perfect colorblind star. Mm -hmm. And then to kind of be cast as like diseased with sex, you know, obsession with yeah. sex and all this, the word, I don't know if that would have happened otherwise, you know, <laughs> so yeah, many, I, I don't, I don't think so. Yeah, and he's contagious or something. Yeah, and people really harped on the fact that many of the women he had affairs were, with were white women and blonde white women. Yeah. That seemed to be really um, kind of a point. Even even if they weren't actually saying it, would mm -hmm. show these they flashed pictures of like a 
you know, compilation of all the women he had affairs with. And it was really clear that they were making this point about white women mm-hmm. and that he was, you know, sort of laughing at the white women. And I think they used that as a way to um, racialize them as, as African-American, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, kind of emphasize that as being a kind of pathology. So I think they, they brought up all these old stereotypes um, as a way to, um, I don't know, it seems like as a punishment in some way for mm-hmm. feeling betrayed. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's let's move to the fourth chapter just briefly, since we already talked a bit about Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. Um, but anything else uh, to say about that before we move on? Uh, its relationship to neocolonialism, uh, the celebration of uh, heterosexual romance, uh, particularly in because there are uh, homosexual romances in the series, but not. Mm-hmm. But then this one seems very actually heteronormative <laughs> between yeah, between the, the cyborg and the human. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which seems strange, right? It sort of seems the the weird thing about this story is that there's a there's a mixed race child in the story, mm-hmm. and all these different families like want to claim her as their as their kid, um, and the one who wins in the end is this mixed race family, which seems like so surprising that 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 would be the idealized family. Huh. Um, but I think it's it's because it's trying on all these other different kinds of family formations that are not this heteronormative nuclear family formation, and all the other people fail, right? Mm-hmm. The the perfect family is, is the one that is so strictly um, organized along gender lines, mm-hmm. um, which is the, the cyborg human family. I mean, it's so weird. There's, you know, the, the only person you ever see doing housework in the entire series is the, you know, the, the woman who's, um, the Asian woman who's in this relationship. It's really weird. Yeah, weird but typical, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just, yeah, I could tell you stories about living in China. <laughs> I'll try not to go into it. Um, but let's... No, you'll, you'll have to tell me after the interview. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but let's go into the, the second half of your book then. Uh, and mm-hmm. the, the way you structure the book is very clever, uh, I have to say, uh, in that it feels like a very, like, like an actual book, I guess, in a way that things overlap and you get back to everything, as opposed to like a bunch of articles that might have been separately produced. Uh, the second half, though, mirrors the first half of the, the book, seems to focus less on the kind of undercover aspect to the multiracial yeah. Asian American and more on uh, the various ways that multiraciality has been acknowledged, uh, commodified, or exposed uh, racial thinking in the U.S., yeah. Uh, so let, let's go to your, your sixth, sixth chapter, which, yeah, again, is on Keanu Reeves. <laughs> um, <laughs> but only kind of. Only kind of. <laughs> but it uses the uh, multiracial, like, you know, it kind of asks, so what if we all saw Keanu Reeves as, as multiracial? And yeah. uh, then what, if, what happens differently when we read uh, the film series? I love arguments like this where it just kind of, you know, this I try to do this in my own work. You know, what if we read it this way? <laughs> what yeah. if we really like took gender into account? Then what happens? And usually things get so much more interesting. Even silly, stupid things get really fun. Yeah. Um, so can you just let us in on how how the, the Matrix film series would change, become richer yeah. and more different and different if we read it as a kind of multiracial narrative? Yeah. So I mean, I think a lot of people when they see this film, the Keanu Reeves is white. Um, but I think it, and a lot of people read it as uh, telling a really um, familiar story, which, you know, I could definitely, I think that is a valid reading as well of, you know, the kind of white savior who comes in and fixes everything for the people of color. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think um, you can also read this as 
you know, what if we, we took seriously the fact that Keanu Reeves is a multiracial actor, um, and how might that change the storyline? And so, um, in the Matrix, like the, the fake world of the Matrix, you know, is almost the light. Mm. Um, and then the kind of the rebellion is a, a conglomeration of different, um, ethnic groups, mostly like, you know, not non-white ethnic groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Keanu Reeves then becomes, or the character Neo becomes this kind of bridge between these two worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the final part of the, the movie, he's the only one who can um, move back and forth without uh, any kind of prosthetics. Mm-hmm. So he can move back and forth between the two, or, two worlds in ways other people can't. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it tells kind of a, a grim story because what happens at the very end is that he gets left out um he's he, he i think he's blinded and then he's um kind of beaten up and he's left lying in no man's land and the rest of the world the rest of the people kind of um uh, go on live in their own separate world after that mm-hmm. and it kind of doesn't leave any space for mixed race people or mixed race bodies um, but i think one of the interesting things for me is the way that it does a sort of met- metaphorical work of how we think about mixed race people because uh what happens is that um the, in the storyline um pe- the these two worlds the white world and the people of color are locked in this um repetitive cycle because of um there's a glitch in the matrix right? there's supposed to be a bug in in the machine mm-hmm. the uh computer program where they all live which causes the same thing to repeat over and over again um and that's so much a way that we think about how race operates in the US Mm-hmm. That, you know, black and white people have never gotten along, will never get along, that um, race is something that is, you know, part, it, it seems to be transcending history, mm-hmm. right? We always think about black people and white people as always having been black and white in the same way um, throughout history. And so the figure of, of Neo um, becomes a way in the story of repairing that glitch in the matrix mm-hmm. and um, allowing for history to start somehow and, and allowing not even for history to start, but for all the past history to be wiped clean, and we get a, a clean slate, and we get to start over again. Hmm. Um, and I think that's much of the way, maybe this is why mixed race, that mixed race mythology is so appealing to us, mm-hmm. is because we we want to have that idea that we don't have to deal with all the injustices of the past, and we can just, maybe we can just wipe it all clean and start fresh and not have to repay all those kinds of uh racial debts that we have that we've built up um, you know, over the past years. Mm-hmm. And this kind of speaks to uh, something that you're doing throughout the book where, you know, you, you read something like the matrix and make it far richer and more interesting, but you don't seem to tag on a particular like political agenda or, you know, perspective. Uh, or you, you've named it as an ambiguous in a lot of ways. Uh, and you also continue this in the next chapter on a uh, Kimora Lee Simmons and her celebrity, you know, I guess I hadn't actually heard of her <laughs> until, I her, uh, but I found out a lot about her. You don't watch enough trashy reality TV. I guess that's why. Yeah, not enough as I should. <laughs> I need to work on that. Uh, but yeah, so she, she seems, uh, and I get this a lot when, when there's like a, a mixed race celebrity, people will just say, Oh, they're so incredibly beautiful. Um, yeah. but then they also seem to have this kind of surface that's hard to penetrate, <laughs> I guess, or yeah. hard to see as like in depth. Um, yeah. and she seems to capitalize a lot on being mixed race as, as a celebrity. Yeah. Uh, but again, it's, it's hard to tie a particular, you know, is it resistant? Is it not kind of ideas yeah. to it? And it seems very politically ambiguous, like watching the matrix films 
with this in mind, right? Like maybe Tiger Woods also, right? It's, it's very difficult to, to, uh, name a particular, uh, uh, perspective on, on any of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think none of the, I mean, I'm just, in, I think I'm interested in looking at, um, media that is, uh, yeah, I, I, ambiguous might be a word for it. One that we haven't really decided what it means. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least I haven't decided what it means. Uh, I feel like those are really interesting moments for me. Um, partly, so the, the, the image that always comes to my mind when I think about this is Josephine Baker, you know, the, um, the African American mm-hmm. dancer who went to Paris like, in the yeah. you know, early part of the 20th century. Um, at the time she, so she did a burlesque, um, act. Mm-hmm. And at the time, she was really not very respectable at all, and everyone thought she was actually kind of awful and exploitative of um, the, the African-American stereotypes. Um, now I think a lot of people look back at her and see her as a pioneer mm-hmm. and see her within this kind of context where she was escaping a lot of the um, the way that she was terrorized in the U.S. by moving to Paris. Um, and, you know, they, they kind of rehabilitated her. Mm-hmm. And so I sometimes try and think about, the images that I look at now as, um, you know, is this, are these moments that we can rehabilitate in some time, in some way, are there other ways we can read this? Um, and I think particularly because I think that um, often women and people of color are not able to make these kinds of um, political moves that are read as political. Mm-hmm. Um, they're often, the, the things that they do are often much more um, limited and constrained by social forces, so it's very difficult for them to become these kinds of um, uh, revolutionary figures because there's because we don't recognize the work they do. Mm-hmm. I think it's difficult to recognize the work they do, um, and so that's partly what I. Um, I mean, not that I think Marley Simmons revolutionary figure, um, but that I want to be able to recognize the. Um, like maybe minor resistances or miniature resistances mm-hmm. um, and think about is this something that could be more meaningful? Maybe it is and maybe it isn't, but I think we will miss a lot of things if we're always saying, well, this is not um, this is not completely revolutionary, so it's not worth thinking about or not worth looking at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a very freeing uh, type of argument, like the dealing with what we can call, I guess, microaggressions, micro-resistances that m- mm-hmm. later on might be huge as far as we know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and maybe not, like right? Maybe it gets buried and we never hear about mm-hmm. it again. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, I am hoping that that's not true. That isn't how it ends up. Uh, so anything else to say about Simmons before we move on to the next chapter? Um, I, I think partly this was the the chapter where I felt like I finally got a chance to talk a bit more about class. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she's really interesting in terms of the way that she also, um, and I think that's one way that kind of undercuts her potential of actually making some uh, more meaningful resistance is because um, she's really, I think, caught up in a lot of these kinds of class politics mm-hmm. um, that make it difficult for her to um, to be seen as, Somebody who people could emulate, um, or think about herself, think about herself in a um, as part of a more collective movement, um, because some of it, so much of it, is based on her having this kind of class privilege that isn't really shared. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's move on to uh, the last chapter, and, and this is probably the one that seems most to really um, be about a, a particular counter narrative or an attempt to make a counter narrative against a dominant narrative, yeah. whereas the others are a bit more ambiguous, or you know. 
one has to read them in particular ways to do that. Uh, the last chapter you focus on uh, Kip Fulbeck, the visual artist, uh, and his famous work, The Hop Up Project. And I think this is the same as like, there's a book made about it, right? Or like a, a picture. Yeah, there it is. Um, and uh, so you argue that the um, this representation of multiracial Asian Americans uh, in the book and in the project uh, provides a, a distinct counter narrative to uh, genetic science and the way genetic science has uh, kind of named and also erased mixed race. Can you uh, tell us, I guess, what the what this dominant narrative is and then how uh, Fulbeck's work uh, counters it? Yeah. Well, so I talk about the uh, the ways that genetics seems to be reinvigorating race in some ways. Mm-hmm. So when when they uh, announced the Human Genome Project, you know, one of the big announcements was we figured out that race is not you know is a is an invention, right? It's mm-hmm. a cultural invention, um, and that there's as much genetic genetic variation within racial groups um, as there is between racial groups. Mm-hmm. Um, so that it isn't a valid you know way of organizing. The world, um, and yet since then, what we've seen medics really being used as a way to prove racial difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's uh, there's a great show called Radio Lab. Um, that's uh, they have podcasts. You can you can look them up. Um, and they had this episode on race that talked about all these different ways that race is being used to say for. Um, uh, police profiling, mm. or the things where people take cheek swabs and they figure out what race they like, what their the race of their ancestors, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for a lot of these genetic scientists, though, mixed race people are kind of the problem mm-hmm. with trying to uh, talk about uh, genetic groups. And so, um, there's often this kind of like impulse to try and find, uh, you know, try and collect d- uh, DNA from groups before they get too mixed. Because that's somehow going to right mess up their mm-hmm. uh, their genetic distinction um, from mm-hmm. other groups, and so uh, I wanted to think about um, how can we look at mixed race people rather than being the problem of genetics as being a way for us to rethink um, how it is that we are using genetics to shore up this. Um, this social construct, right, of race. And it's certainly not the first time that you see science being, I think, misused that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the, the uh, Fulbeck work, how does this uh, provide a counter-narrative to that? Yeah. Um, so what I see happening in the Fulbeck work, and um, let me just mention, I get more pushback, I think, from this chapter than just about any. Oh. Um, I think most people find Fulbeck's work to be um, – really problematic mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and see it as uh, reifying kind of exotic or uh, exotic views of mixed race people or making them into spectacles. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just want to mention that I am yeah, aware of the fact true. that this is um, against the grain. Um, but what, what I think is interesting, so the, the in his art, he's got a photograph of someone who's mixed race mm-hmm. kind of looking straight at the screen and then um, a typed list at the bottom of different um, either racial or ethnic identifiers. And I think he asked the people themselves to tell them what, you know, what to write. Mm-hmm. And then a sort of handwritten note. And so he asked everybody, what are you? And they have a handwritten note under their, their pictures that say, what are you? And people answer it in all sorts of ways. You know, they make jokes or sometimes they, they um, you know, they say where their parents are from or they, people answer it in all sorts of different ways. Um, but for me, I found it really interesting because it's, um, it allows us to think about racial identities as being coming from these multiple spaces mm. that um, for 
a lot of times say for genetic sciences, part of the problem is trying to reduce race to the single, um, the single uh, way of identifying it, right? Mm -hmm. Race is this genetic code mm -hmm. or um, race is uh, uh, where, where, what part of the world your ancestor came from. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, the example I use is from a study that was done in Barbados, I think it is. Um, and the person writing about it called, uh, was saying that they collected all this different kind of information from people, mm -hmm. but when they turned in their um, surveys, people had to pick one race mm. um, as a, a way to identify themselves. Um, and so what I want to talk about is if we could think about race as being as coming from multiple sources mm -hmm. and um, being a negotiation between all these different kinds of narratives and discourses, I think that's how it is that race actually um, inheres and embodies for us. Uh, and I think that his work kind of allows us to see that. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. I mean, it always seems like everyone has to start with a big definition of what they think race is. And then uh, it could be very, it seems like so overdetermined by so many different narratives yeah. and forces. Uh, we're running out of time. So uh, can you tell us about uh, any new research that you've been working on now? Mm. Uh, yeah, sort of bits and pieces of stuff. Uh, I'm working, I was working mainly on graphic novels. I'm interested in uh Asian diaspora and graphic novels. So mm. I guess that's kind of the shorthand version of what I'm what I'm working on now. Mm, okay, very cool. Uh, what, what particular novels? Uh, um, I just finished presenting on the arrival, which is the Sean Tan. It's like a wordless graphic novel oh. about uh, migration, okay. and then um, the Amulet series. The do you know there's like a best-selling kids series mm. from Scholastic Books. Oh, okay. So, and it's kind of more of an um, adventure fantasy uh, series of books. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, I want to thank you for very much for being on the show. Uh, I think it was thank you for inviting me. This has been fun. Well, thank you again, and take care. Thank you for listening to my interview with Leilani Nishime on her book, Undercover Asian, Multiracial Asian Americans in Visual Culture. If you have any questions, grievances, or suggestions for books for this podcast, please send me a message on the New Books in Asian American Studies Facebook page. See you next time.